Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for your patience as we sort out our uh, technical difficulties. I hope everyone is doing well today. Uh, my name is Daniela Gibbs-Leger and I'm the Executive Vice President for Communications and Strategy at the Center for American Progress, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Uh, as a member of the host committee for this conference, welcome. Uh, I wish we could all be meeting in person in Atlanta and then going out for some delicious food later tonight. Uh, but I thank you all for virtually joining us for our talk today, the Action Tank Strategies for Tumultuous Times. For today's session, we're going to talk a little bit about us, discuss the importance of communications and movement building, how being nimble can lead to communication success, and talk about some lessons learned from this absolute dumpster fire of a year. As we go through our opening remarks, please feel free to introduce yourself in the chat. And while we will have time for questions at the end of our presentation, feel free to drop your questions if you have them, as you have them, in the Q&A box at any time. So what is CAP, you might be asking? We are a 17-year-old action-oriented think tank that strives to advance progressive causes on nearly every possible front, from creating better paying jobs to safeguarding our environment and defending basic civil rights. Our mission captures it best. The Center for American Progress is an independent, nonpartisan policy institute that is dedicated to improving the lives of all Americans through bold progressive ideas, as well as strong leadership and concerted action. Our aim is not just to change the conversation, but to change the country. We have teams that cover every major policy issue, climate change, education, racial justice, democracy, over 20 policy teams in all. We not only develop those policy ideas, but we also communicate them effectively to policy leaders, community leaders, and the broader public. John Podesta, a senior advisor to both Presidents Clinton and Obama, founded CAP in 2003 to be a multi-issue think tank that approached policy creation differently. We were founded on the idea that you can write all the brilliant policy papers you want, but if you don't have the infrastructure in place to get those ideas into the public discourse and eventually pass into, the, into law, what is the point? It was that thinking, that commitment to investing 50% of our budget to communications and outreach that led me to make the leap from politics to CAP from my first stint here way back in 2005. And I so believed in CAP that when I had the opportunity to choose my next adventure after the Obama White House, I chose to come back here. I believe our work is more important than ever before because right now, some in our country believe that thoughtful policies founded upon research and rationality no longer matter. But the truth is the public is still moved by ideas and solutions which focus on addressing the real challenges they face. And I'm so grateful that I get to work at a place that has a real commitment to both policy creation and communications and outreach. So I look forward to our conversation today and getting your thoughts and questions. And with that, I'll turn it over to Marlene to introduce herself. Thanks, Daniela. Hi, everybody. Uh, sorry we're not in Atlanta sipping on peach tea while thinking deep communications thoughts, but very, very happy to be with you all virtually today. Um, I'm Marlene Cooper Vasilich, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. I run the events arm of the communications department, and I started at CAP in 2007 during the Obama candidacy when hope and change actually seemed achievable. I still almost can't believe how long it's been watching and participating during the growth of the organization, or sometimes the morphing of the organization as we adjusted into what we needed to become during different administrations. It's been a fascinating thing, let me tell you. 
uh, I didn't have a policy background coming to CAP. I worked in the arts and arts administration uh, from a two-person press shop out of a small African-American theater company in the heart of Minnesota. Yes, they do exist. Shout out to Penumbra Theater in St. Paul to running the education team at the State Theater of Maryland Center Stage in Baltimore. And right before CAP, I was building performances and hands-on arts education experiences at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. So more of the question for me when I was interviewing was why they would want me. It was uh, the answer that partially convinced me why I needed to become a part of CAP. Uh, Sarah Wartell, then the EVP of policy at CAP, who now runs Urban Institute, spelled it out for me. CAP has tremendous policy expertise and many avenues for getting attention inside the Beltway and in the halls of Congress, but they were also looking for help illuminating the messages to broader audiences in more palatable and non-traditional ways. That spoke to me. It wasn't every day you see a think tank gracing the stage at Aspen Comedy Festival or reaching past their traditional audiences to make sure all affected are included. Uh, I think it was Nina Simone that said, as an artist, you have a duty to re reflect the times you live in. Through our events, we really try to showcase how lives of people in our country, our states, our communities are impacted and can be bettered. If we tell the story accurately and authentically, it's a win for everyone. And without further ado, Allison, you're up. Thanks, Marlene. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. I wanna to echo Daniela and Marlene. Uh, and just expressing my regret, we can't all be together this week in Atlanta, but convening virtually is the next best thing. Uh, my name is Allison Price. My pronouns, she, her, and hers. And I'm the Vice President of Communications here at CAP. Um, a little bit about me and how I came to the organization. I spent the first six years of my career mostly on Capitol Hill, working in the Senate in various communications roles. Uh, in 2014, the senator I was working for at the time announced that he was retiring, and 2014 wasn't really looking to be a great year uh, for Democrats electorally. And the first opportunity off the Hill that intrigued me was an associate director of media relations position. Uh, at CAP. And I'd always thought in the back of my head that if I were to leave the Hill, I'd really want to go to a place like CAP. Um, I like that it wasn't an ivory tower think tank, not that there's anything wrong with those, uh, and that they had great reach on the Hill and in progressive administrations. And I also knew that they plowed a huge percentage of their resources into communications and outreach, so much so that when I was doing my research and preparation for my first interview, I was completely and utterly overwhelmed by the list of existing staff on the website working under communications. Uh, but the rest is history. Six years later, I'm still here helping oversee a nine-person media relations team. CAP is not your grandfather or your grandmother's think tank. In the time that I've been at CAP, we've added three new policy teams criminal justice, our disability justice initiative, and tech policy. Uh, we've added an entirely new state and local government affairs team. We've restructured our communications apparatus and we've added capacity on the press and digital fronts. And I have just been completely and consistently blown away by my smart colleagues from my communications teammates here today to our brilliant PhD economists to our just out of college research assistants publishing work that might get written up in the Washington Post. 
So I'm really looking forward to discussing with you all today how we have adapted our work for tumultuous times and explain a little bit about how we use communications from media relations to digital strategy to events to affect real progressive change. And then I'm looking forward to your questions as well. And finally, we'll hear from someone who needs no introduction to many of you here at ComNet, CAPS Vice President for Digital Strategy, Jamie Perez. Edit, that wasn't taken. Um, hey there, everybody. Uh, Jamie Perez here, VP of Digital Strategy, he, him pronouns. Uh, like all of you, I'm sorry we can't be together in person. Um, sadly, this also means I won't be inviting any of you to a surely embarrassing reunion show I was going to do with my old band while down in Atlanta. Um, I think the world is probably better for it. Um, so, so let's talk about CAP. Um, you know, uh, before CAP, I'd spent about 20 years in digital agencies working with all kinds of clients, big brands, scrappy startups, commercial companies, the government, nonprofits. Uh, but it was always my work with think tanks and mission-driven organizations that I found the most fulfilling. And I remember first coming across CAP in its early years, must have been 2004, 2005. Um, we were doing some landscape analysis for uh, a digital strategy for another notable Washington, uh, D.C. think tank. And while my client had considerable uh, had a considerable reputation, had considerable resources, we were quickly envious of what was going on at CAP. We knew when it came to the role of communications and impact that CAP got it. You could just see it. And they, they were structuring and investing accordingly. So listen, every single one of us on this Zoom will spend our careers trying to better bridge the divide between research and communications. Uh, you know, it, it's just the nature of the beast with policy change. We all know both the culture clashes and the great opportunities that come up. But in CAP, I saw a chance to skip ahead on that journey. We still have our collaboration woes. They'll always be someone who works on research for two years, only to tell you they want to release the report uh, two weeks ahead of their hopeful release date. Uh, but with our DNA, uh, these moments ha happen less often. And with the kind of team we have, the interdisciplinary team we have, uh, we're always able to make something happen. So uh, great to be talking to everybody. With that, let's, let's jump into what making something look, happen can look like. Great, thank you, Jamie. So the work that we do as communication specialists, be it in the press, digital, or event side of things, is challenging in the easiest of times. And the last several years have been anything but easy. But at CAP, we have worked hard to achieve success, be it on offense or defense, by using all the tools at our disposal and sharing our research and findings with our partners. An example of building movements and messaging through constantly changing circumstances. Uh, we're gonna dig a little bit into our role around the Affordable Care Act and the unique role we played via policy, communications, and advocacy. Starting way back at the beginning, back in 2005, we published a paper that provided the framework for what is now known as the Affordable Care Act. But we didn't just stop there. We used our communications and outreach tools to build support for our plan. We pushed year in and year out to build support for these ideas until eventually they were passed into law under the administration of President Barack Obama. This work included policy development, message testing and development, communication strategy, and outreach to and coordination with our allies. And as we all know, the ACA was a signature achievement of Obama's administration and eventually provided more than 20 million Americans with affordable health care. This seven-year history of writing, communicating, and advocating on behalf of expanding health care for all Americans positioned us well to shift to the changes and threats that were coming and after Donald Trump became president and conservatives launched an all-out effort to repeal the ACA from every side, 
CAP helped spearhead the movement to defend and preserve the law. So now I'll turn it over to Allison to discuss the role that the press and media relations team played in that defense. Uh, thanks, Daniela, for that great lay of the land and a little peek into our history. So I want to start this discussion by talking a little bit about our structure and how it allows us to do the work that we do and how it enabled us to mount our defense of the Affordable Care Act. So as I mentioned, I help oversee a nine-person team on the C3 side of American progress. Uh, that includes a director of broadcast media, two directors of media relations, two associate directors of media relations, a senior media coordinator, a senior broadcast coordinator, a constituency media associate, and a press assistant. You heard Daniela say we put a lot of resources into communications. You can see it right there. And our team, my team is structured, uh, I think a little bit like a PR firm. So if each policy team at CAP is a client, then our directors and our associate directors of media relations are a little bit like account directors. Uh, collectively, they're in charge of communications, uh, media relations strategy really, for 17 of, out of 20 of our separate policy teams or accounts. And while they report to me, they're also embedded with their policy teams and they handle their media relations strategy from start to finish. And then, as I mentioned, we've got a two-person broadcast team handling TV, radio, and podcast booking, a staffer specializing in the editing and placement of op-eds, uh, a staffer handling constituency media, including Spanish language media. But so much of our work is overlapping and intersectional. So it's also really crucial that our teammates doing policy comms also work really closely together as well. And so we meet every morning so that the right hand knows as much as possible what the left is doing. And we really try to stay coordinated as much as we can. We also work closely with our smaller but no less mighty communications counterparts on the C4 side of American progress, that's CAP Action. Uh, and as Daniela mentioned, when ACA repeal was on the table, our history with the writing and the enactment of the law ensured that we were well positioned to defend it. It's a little bit like riding a bicycle. Even though you haven't done it for a while, you're ready to hop right back on. Uh, our policy teams uh, generated dozens of products covering almost every aspect of the healthcare debate. Uh, along with many of our partners, we helped make pre-existing conditions a household term with analyses showing the number of Americans with pre-existing conditions in each congressional district and state. We also illustrated coverage losses and premium hikes by congress congressional district and state. We looked at the impact of ACA repeal on women, on seniors, on communities of color. We looked at the impact on maternity care and on mental health and substance abuse treatment, including opioid treatment. And, you know, CAP, we're, we're here in Washington, D.C., and as a D.C. think tank, our focus and strength is usually, I should say primarily, in national communications. We're not a membership organization, and our outreach is not often focused at the micro level. But we set up internal working groups to handle our various communications needs, in addition to participating in coalition efforts with our progressive partners. So I'll start off by saying that we, of course, wanted to influence the Beltway, the high-level conversation around healthcare. But for the healthcare debate, which was so deeply personal to so many people, we also needed to do more to reach people where they actually get their news, which, of course, is not always the Washington Post or the New York Times or CNN. So we pivoted to focus on state and local communications, as well as specialty publications and news outlets, including Spanish language and Black media. In a short period of time, we placed more than 200 news stories featuring CAP experts or original analysis. As Jamie will discuss, our digital and storytelling efforts also helped garner hundreds more clips, op-eds, TV and radio hits featuring the stories of real Americans, Americans with pre-existing conditions, uh, parents 
that had a child with a disability or Americans whose lives had just been saved thanks to the Affordable Care Act. These clips appeared across 40 US states and were often targeted towards district or states, districts or states with members of Congress or senators that were critical to the health reform debate, including Alaska, Arizona, Maine, and many more. Syndicated print clips from outlets like McClatchy helped us reach more readers in state and local news outlets. And that was of course on top of clips in the standard array of national and beltway publications and TV shows. So not only did we help shape the narrative and help defeat the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, but we created a really resilient infrastructure that we were able to revive just a couple months later when Congress took up the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which included the repeal of the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate. And I'll discuss later, it's an infrastructure that we are reviving once more with the threat to the ACA posed by the vacancy left on the Supreme Court following the uh, sad and untimely passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Marlene to discuss how events played a role. Thank you, Allison. Um, as you've talked about the full and multi-pronged approach we took on ACA and healthcare in general, I'm reminded of a pivotal moment in CAPS event history that actually helped plant the flag for us, I believe, as the think, think tank with key policy chops and a laser focus on healthcare. In 2007, we, along with SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, and UNLV, hosted a presidential forum on healthcare. We had all the Democratic candidates on the ticket, except for Biden. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was his mother's birthday, so he couldn't come. Uh, it was a marathon event of candidates, and one that really held folks' feet to the fire on their healthcare plans. It forced all sides to focus on this issue that every citizen needs and deserves quality healthcare that doesn't break them financially. Scroll forward to the first Obama term and the passing of the ACA, where so many of the building blocks and key protections were workshopped at CAP. We continued to hone in on refining and protecting access to healthcare and held key events counting down to enrollment. Our work through events with partners continued too, with the incubation of the nonprofit Doctors for America. We had access to physicians from all 50 states to help spread the word about expanding health insurance and, and ensuring access to care. A little more on our events process at CAP. Uh, I lead a five person events team, including myself, and we work to create our, event, our events with our policy teams. We in events have never been presenters alone. We are producers and help lead our policy shops in developing their event experiences. We mold each event and try to personalize, personalize each story. As we, as we are curating our events with our policy teams, we also say hell no to hosting mantles. I'll say that again. We say hell no to hosting mantles or all male panels. As an audience member, as a woman, as an African, there's nothing more distasteful to me than seeing a panel of old white men with no thought to diversities of any kind represented on stage. So we don't do that. In 2018, we transitioned to a fully accessible events experience with the launch of our Disability Justice Initiative. All our events, virtual or physical, are live captioned. We want to make sure our panels look like our country and showcasing those facets will always make for a fuller discussion and more audience engagement. Uh, 
Uh, now, I think as we're going to move on to some of the more, some of the other key advocacy moments in our healthcare work. So I'm going to turn it over to Jamie. Thank you, Marlene. Thank you for all that. Um, you know, when it comes to uh, protecting the Affordable Care Act, I first think about all the voices we need to tell the stories, to make it real and make a difference. Um, knowing opponents were aligning to dismantle the ACA, uh, we launched ACAWorks.org quickly after the 2016 election. We didn't wait for inauguration. We didn't wait for the opening of the new Congress. We got it out there and we started to gather up those personal stories. We knew we'd have to show again and again how Americans depended on the benefits and protections delivered by the ACA. These stories lent themselves to the press work Allison spoke to, the events like Marlene described, along with government affairs activities and other outreach. But they were also valuable to our partners who could use them to produce their own videos, their own stories, their own events, increasing our reach, garnering attention, all while staying coordinated in, in a coalition. That coalition-minded work as a team approach suffused everything we were doing. In fact, we'd eventually transitioned this entire targeted story bank program to a partner to run it ongoing while CAP shifted its attention to other pieces of the cause. Even still, our advocacy efforts focused on finding and elevating powerful messengers across a broad community of stakeholders, be it physician groups like Doctors for America for voices most trusted by patients, chronic illness groups like the American Cancer Society and the American Diabetes Society to connect with patients whose lives and financial security are safeguarded by the ACA and likely to be most affected, even hospital groups like the American Hospital Association for hospital executives who can speak to how hospitals themselves would be hurt by repeal, just to name a few. But we also knew we were gonna need a set of tools for this. We continue our work with coalition partners to establish and maintain those tools we need for what is a protracted fight. Uh, it is far from over, uh, sadly. Um, as simple as a tool as it is, the hashtag protect our care has made it easy for a growing chorus to elevate relevant research and conversation whenever it matters. Back in December, January, if you remember December, January, that was when you could go on a plane, you could go to a restaurant, you could see random friends at random times, you might even meet people. Um, we were mounting a response to the Fifth Circuit Court's ruling on the constitutionality of the individual mandate. It was a decision that potentially endangers the entire law. Using that simple hashtag, we were able to um, we were able to mount an all-day ACA affects us all tweet storm with our teams and our partners. We coordinated around issue-oriented time blocks in a single day, and our policy and outreach teams were able to engage issue-specific coalitions along with the usual suspects from the dedicated ACA coalitions to align and push the conversation back up the agenda. Um, if we can move forward, um, I, I can't see the slides because you know I can't. That's fine. Uh, the, AC, the ACA means a lot to us at CAP, obviously. I mean, you've heard that here today. We believe it means a lot for all Americans, but there's a host of pressing issues that need solutions. From the fight to protect DACA, because we can't just, we just can't get enough of the courts at CAP. You wouldn't believe how many lawyers work at CAP, like every third person's a lawyer. They love the courts. Uh, to the creation of the Equality Act that expanded civil rights protections, especially for those from the LGBTQ community. We've, on that one, we've made it as far as passage in the House, if you're keeping score. Uh, and to our ongoing commitment to disability justice, which has been mentioned a few times already today. One of our newest programs at CAP, but one whose values go all the way back to our founding. That's just scratching the surface. Working with 20 policy teams is no joke. But, but you know, as we're preparing today, 
um, we were reminding ourselves that be a lot of different folks from different organizations here. We asked ourselves, what can a one person army comm shop take away from all this, right? Uh, let's be real. Uh, we have 30 people, I don't know, 30 people. Uh, we can't handle all of this. Um, I don't care how big you are. We all have limits, but we also all have our strengths and it's teamwork that's gonna take us to impact. For us, that teamwork can be seen in day in, day out work with our coalitions. And the coalitions, you know, and coalitions work for us is all about on focusing on what we are best at as CAP. We focusing on our strengths and finding collaborators that can bring their best to complement our work and, and all push towards change. So no matter what your size is, know what you're good at, double down on it, and make sure the movement around you knows what you're best for too. Speaking of coalitions, uh, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends from United We Dream. Uh, they're powerful organizing force behind a coalition known as Home Is Here. Uh, we, we participate in that uh, for our work on DACA. And if you want to hear more on that, uh, they're going to be speaking tomorrow afternoon in a breakout session. So, so surely check that out. Um, and, and as we get deeper here, just a reminder, if you have questions, uh, throw them in the Q&A function. I'm told that's something you can see. We'll come back, we'll come back around to questions shortly. Daniela? Great. Thank you, Jamie. I will talk a little bit now about being nimble. Uh, regardless of the size of your communication shop, be it a shop like CAP or, as Jamie said, a one-person army, uh, being nimble is important, never more so than in tumultuous times such as these. Uh, being a nimble organization and a comm shop allowed us to make the transition to a post-COVID world in a relatively smooth manner. Uh, we were able to get our information out to the media and key stakeholders because we were set up to respond to the moment. So we were busier, we've been busier than ever with COVID work. And we used the good work we were doing to help keep morale up on a team. Um, a quick plug for all the managers out there to remember the importance of checking in on your team, especially now that we're all virtual. Uh, we used our work around COVID as a way to continue to validate our team's feelings, but also remind them of the great work that they're doing. Like, hey, we're all exhausted and we're scared and we're freaking out and we're terrified right now, but also look at all this fantastic work that we're doing and look at the impact it is having on the COVID response in states in real time. Being an organization with 20 different policy teams also allowed us to ensure that all of our work around COVID had a racial justice and equity lens. The communities most hurt, uh, disproportionately hurt by the virus are black, brown, native, disabled, and low-income communities. So it was important that our work our solutions and our outreach center those communities. Now, I'll be honest, this section was going to be a deep dive into the work that we've done around COVID, George Floyd, and the reckoning around racial justice and police reform, and of course the election in November, right? All things that are keeping us on our toes this year. Uh, and then this weekend happened. And once again, we had to pivot as an organization. So Allison will talk about how we've once again refocused on the ACA in the aftermath of the unfortunate passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, thanks, Daniela. Um, so yeah, as Daniela just mentioned, that the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, it changed not only the presentation that we have prepared uh, today here for ComNet, but it is changing our communication strategy in real time. Uh, there are so many groups involved in, in any SCOTUS battle. Uh, we've all mentioned the coalition, the really important coalition work that we engage in. 
Um, but for a group like CAP uh, that has so many policy teams uh, that, that's got a, a strength in resources, we really have to assess what strengths we bring to the table and what our value add can be. Uh, because our coalitions, the coalitions we work in across the progressive table, they have a lot of talent. Uh, one week after the election, the Supreme Court is expected to hear arguments in California v. Texas, a case that once again puts the ACA at risk. Uh, we are now in a situation where nearly 7 million Americans may now have a new pre-existing co uh, condition. They were once infected uh, with the coronavirus. Uh, we do not know what the long-term implications are of having COVID. We don't know the long-term implications of this disease. So if you have, if you have at any point had COVID, you may now have a condition that the insurance companies will consider to be a pre-existing one. Uh, and that's in addition to tens of millions of Americans with cancer that have survived cancer, with diabetes, with asthma, with heart conditions. The list really goes on. So everyone here, I think most folks know that if the ACA goes away, so do the protections for Americans with pre-existing conditions. So we are once again reviving our internal working groups and working in external coalitions to drive home this very critical message. Uh, because filling this Supreme Court seat, this is not just about Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. This is really, truly the future of healthcare that's on the line. So that's the message that we're really looking to underscore once more. Uh, and I wanna turn it over now to Marlene. Thanks again, Allison. Um, uh, and so just today, responding to this unprecedented moment, uh, CAP Action held an event that focused on how Congress can prevent executive branch abuses, restore accountability, and protect our elections. Uh, it, like I said, it was, it was a pretty sparkly event for us. We talked to House leaders, including intelligence chairs, Adam Schiff, Jerry Nadler and Carolyn Maloney. And we had a rock star panel, if I do say so myself, of House members, including representatives Madeline Dean, Val Demings, Hakeem Jeffries, Katie Porter, and Jamie Raskin. We talked about the legislation being released today, which include tangible solutions to safeguarding our democracy and preventing the exploitation of the current system. We talked about how to prevent any president's personal gain for coming before public interest. If you want to check that out, it's at AmericanProgressAction.org. Um, so now we really want to talk about some of the lessons learned since the beginning of COVID, where so much of life as we know it has been turned upside down. Uh, Daniela, you want to get us started? Sure. Uh, aside from having a large supply of disinfectant wipes, uh, I would say uh, the biggest lesson so far for me is that fundamentals matter, that facts still matter, uh, even though it feels like they don't. Um, it feels like we spent a lot of 2020 being constantly gaslit, and that's because we were. Uh, but at the end of the day, despite all of that, the facts do still matter, and how you communicate them can make a difference in shaping policy and in shaping the conversation. And that's something we've seen over the year. That really. is so true, that's so true. And for me, uh, during a time when so many event staffers, all of my uh, former colleagues at the Kennedy Center around the country were being laid off or furloughed because of the cancellation of physical events, we fortunately were able to adjust and transition to this new norm. Uh, 
In event production, though, uh, the pivotal questions for producing policy events haven't changed. What's the story? What's your goal? Who are your storytellers that showcase why these ideas are impactful to people's lives? Those, those fundamental truths haven't changed about building events. Um, but also one really practical piece of advice uh, that for all virtual events, events in this virtual wor world, prep, rehearsal, and run through is key. Uh, one quick story about when we first went all virtual, we were on the platform GoToWebinar. And when panelists access the event link to join the discussion before the start of the program, they see a really big red button at the top of their screen that says start broadcast on it. Getting participants not to press that big red button before we're ready to go live was such a challenge. Um, I'm sure Tristan can probably tell you a little bit more about this. Make sure to rehearse folks so folks know when to press the button and understand the technologies involved. And I will leave it at that. Allison? Yeah, thanks Marlene. Uh, well, I think adjust and transition uh, are just two of the, the, the key takeaways. Uh, you know, I think the way that we're doing our work now the media, our, on the media relations side uh, since in the last six months, it's, it's different. It's not necessarily uh, worse. So, you know, of course, I absolutely hope uh, that we can one day, hopefully one day soon, return to the office, that we can go back to having uh, those one-on-ones, pen and pads, in-person events, all the ways that we have helped build relationships with members of the media and learn to align our pitches uh, with the topics and subjects that they're interested in covering. Um, but, you know, one of, I would say, a, a silver lining that we're seeing is that we're, the media attendance now at our events is actually going up. We're getting more coverage now uh, for the event, for the work that we're doing virtually, our virtual events. Uh, the idea of doing a virtual one-on-one, -on -one, it no longer sounds uh, as, as weird as it used to. Um, and I think one other, I think on a more personal note, uh, one key takeaway and this is a quote I've seen floating around on social media is that, you know, in this current environment, we are not just working from home. We are at our homes during a crisis trying to work. Uh, Daniela touched on the, the management experience earlier. And I think from the management perspective, that's a really important point to keep in mind. And that's space that we've got to give ourselves as communicators, as managers, uh, and to our teams that we work with and, and to just try to always keep that sense of, uh, of compassion and our humanity uh, really front and center because I think that's why we're all involved in this type of work. And Jamie. Thanks, Allison. Uh, I actually, um, you reminded me in, in, the, in the two and a half years that have transpired since Friday, um, I have forgotten that our be nimble was going to be so much about maintaining internal morale. <laughs> we, we totally we had to kick that to the curb. We can talk about that in Q&A if anybody would like. Um, but, but for me, uh, the learning I go to is one that uh, I've always tried to have guide uh, digital practice wherever, wherever I am. Uh, and that's to do good and then get better. Those are, those are two different steps. Um, because perfect is never coming and, and, and part of me dies inside every time somebody starts a sentence with, it's not perfect, but, or it's not ideal, but, um, because those things are never coming. And, and I, I feel like it's our job, morale and more, to help people understand that reality and, and why, it's, why things are that way and why it's important, especially in these times when opportunities move and change so quickly. Um, 
you know, we work every day to get our teams comfortable with, with the realities we work in. We, we can't sit around waiting for something precious. The opportunity will leave us. Uh, so what we, what we do in our team is we focus on making sure we state our intentions in what we do. Uh, and, and the next step, which everybody hates, not only stating our intentions, but documenting them. Um, the, that documented intention lets us look back and see the reality of what transpired. Should we act differently? Should we do differently? And it lets the next effort that comes along that's similar, pick up where we left off and push a little further, do a little better. Um, I know it's incremental and that doesn't, you know, that, that can be hard in a slog like we're in uh, with this pandemic, but, but it's the only way to live. Uh, it's a journey and you gotta keep on journey. Thanks. Great, thank you, Jamie. Um, we will now uh, take some questions again. Please feel free to put them into the Q&A function that I believe is at the bottom of your screen. Uh, we have a few in here. And if I um, mess up your name, it's not intentional, sorry. Uh, so I wanna start with uh, Sydney Olnick. I'm gonna ask your second question first, because uh, you asked if we were responsible for Adam Schiff's op-ed uh, that I believe was in the New York Times this morning. I don't think we can. Yes, it was all. Okay. No, I'm just. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think it's in the post. What? I was late. We this didn't morning. write that op-ed. Sorry. <laughs> but we, well, we may not have written it, but obviously somebody was being very intentional about creating an echo chamber. So they introduced legislation. He had the op-ed. They did this great event with us. So that to me just goes to like you know being intentional about your communications and trying to hit as many people uh, as possible at different places. Uh, but I'll ask your first question now, uh, which goes to Jamie, but um, other folks can jump in too. And Cindy asked, uh, how did you get so many people to share their stories or did it just happen? Everyone can weigh on this, but it didn't just happen. Um, you know, uh, after transitioning uh, uh, th that campaign, um, acaworks.org to, to a partner, uh, we, we refashioned our whole internal story banking practices. Uh, and that's another panel for another day. It's one of the things that's um, goddamn gold about CAP. I, I would say our press team and our story banking are things when I walked in that just blew my socks off because they're things you don't see. I see the events, right? I, you don't see what's going. Um, and we've really found, uh, honestly, not only if you don't know how resource intensive story banking is, um, reach out, we can talk. Um, but, but there is an active prospecting we're constantly doing through our coalition partners, through media scanning. Um, there is some feedback loop when you start getting some momentum and people start sharing and, and, a, and a, an intake site can, can intake more. Um, but, but there, was active, there was active recruitment for those stories. There was, uh, you know, everything from earned media, paid media, social media. Uh, and like I said, a lot of uh, turning to our coalition partners to say, who do you know? Um, that's one of the benefits of working with large membership organizations and advocacy. Uh, you know, some of the things like uh, United We Dream has been able to do around Home is Here. Um, you know, they have a giant member network. Um, and if you're looking for things, uh, they can help you find them and they can, they can also help you hear so, so you can learn better what you're looking for. I don't know if anybody wants to add that loquaciousness. Yeah, Jamie, I think the, just the one thing I would add quickly is um, that our, our story bank team, our, the folks on working on that, they, I think they also do a very, an excellent and really 
Um, they bring a lot of intentionality to the work that they do as far as building trust with storytellers. Uh, and that nothing, ha if it's whether they're going on TV, writing an op-ed, uh, whatever it is, I think they take a lot of care to, to uh, stay within boundaries, to not reveal more information than is intended, to make sure that people you know, these are people that are sharing sometimes intensely personal stories. They may have lost a family member to COVID. I mean, or they have a child with a disability. These are not, you know, stuff that you want, you know, can you imagine all your personal details splashed on the front page of the New York Times? So I think it's also creating and cultivating a sense of uh, respect and trust that, that really infuses our storytelling process as well. And I've got to give all my credit to our colleagues for that. Yeah, um, I'm just, just, piggybacking on what Allison said. I mean, this, these are so personal. So, uh, and so being true to, to those individuals and not making it feel performative in nature that th th this is somebody's life that you're talking about. And, and recognizing that and respecting that is, is really important to cap. Um, and I think that's what has really prompted more and more people to, to submit their stories. Um, and then we hold their hand. We don't just throw them out there uh, to, to talk about these, you know, deeply personal experiences. And uh, again, just shouting out our story bank team because, uh, you know, all the kudos go to them. Okay, I figured out how to unmute myself. Um, two people have asked this question. Um, so I'm going to ask it now. How do you measure success? Uh, just a quick story. I have this running list of um, banned words and phrases in the communication sphere uh, that I, if I read through it right now, I'm sure everybody on the Zoom call would be like, yep, 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 yep. Um, circle back being like one of the biggest ones. And I use it myself, but it, that phrase should just, no. Um, and one of them was like, what does success look like? But it's a really important question and like you have to be able to answer it at the start of a process or else you're just so i would like everybody uh to take a moment to answer that question from your perspective purchase uh how do you measure success and i understand that it may depend on exactly what we're working on so um allison i'll start with you because you're unmuted <laughs> thank you uh that's a great question and uh you know i think especially working in the progressive uh in the progressive space uh, you're never going to achieve success 100% of the time. You know, we, I think in the deep, in the deepest, darkest days of the last few years we've been in, you know, you look, we look back on, you know, John McCain on the Senate floor with the thumbs down as, uh, you know, just an incredible, uh, an incredible uh, milestone, benchmark, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, you know, I think part of it has to do with also being realistic about the environment that we're in. Uh, it's about having the conversation. Uh, we've all talked here today about all the different teams we have across CAP, across CAP Action, across um, uh, all of our policy teams. So even, um, you know, when I started here six years ago and I was working with our education teams on rolling out, rolling out one of their many reports, they put out a lot of paper every, every week, different analysis. It's, you know, success looks like different things to different teams and to different authors. Is every analysis gonna be front page New York Times? No. 
But if you are working in the education space and you really want to reach the people, the education stakeholders, I know we all love that word, stakeholders, or the people that are actually working on writing the bills or they're working in the agencies and they're doing the rulemaking, and then you want to figure out, well, where are they getting their news? Where are they getting their information? Can we, can we reach them? That might not be through the New York Times, but getting a great exclusive in a you know, a newspaper or a news outlet that everyone in the K-12 space reads, and then it gets picked up by other national education reporters around the country, that, that's a big success. So I think your definition of success, you know, of course, as the vice president of communications, there's nothing I love more than opening up that, that daily clips packet and, and seeing the page go on and on and on. But, um, you know, it's just going to be different in, in every circumstance. And, you know, of course, we, we put together the metrics, we look at where our clips are coming from, we've got our, you know, we make our board reports and all of those things. But I think as someone who works in media relations, for me, what success also looks like is, again, like I said, if I'm working with an author, I'm working with a policy team, and they're looking to achieve a certain goal, whatever I can do from the communications front to help them achieve that, then that to me looks like success. I can, I guess I can go next. Uh, so um, in the events world, um, at least in the physical events world, uh, it was, it's never at CAP been just about the butts in the seats. Uh, but I can tell you that when we were doing physical events, making sure that we had a full and robust audience was uh, a, a sign of success, a sign of success and one sign of success, I should say. Um, I think that now in this virtual world, it's really about how we are able to touch our audiences and really get the materials across. So, and, and making sure that uh, what we're presenting is clear is uh is cohesive is not wonkified it's not like you know just uh, uh experts spitting facts at you but it's it tells a story and I, I think i've mentioned this already uh in the past uh that making sure there's an authentic message being delivered um and so we we try to make sure with our teams with our policy teams that we have checked all those boxes when we go into events um switching into the virtual has been has brought up another set of challenges so just making sure that we're 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 adept at shifting uh to this moment and 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 not having too long panels or not having panels that go in uh that go into the weeds too much but really state the ideas clearly and having sparklies uh that's where i what i call our our really special vip events if we're having sparklies like uh chairman schiff doesn't hurt at all um of course there are actual uh event metrics that we look at following each of uh each of our events and, and we go over where we want to be with each of the teams making sure that they've hit their targeted audiences and um i think that you know with the addition of, of jamie uh on our team we've just uh it, it's been so much easier in finding out if we've hit those targets uh from the digital metrics uh so yeah i i think that's what we try to achieve um, in the event production world. I'll jump in real quick. I, I, I agree with all, everything you've heard. Uh, the, the, the toughest thing for us is 20 policy teams mean more than 20 
strategies, uh, more than 20 tactics, more than, you know, hundreds of things going on at, at CAP. And it's, it's, you know, I'll go back to intention that I mentioned before. You got to have intention to measure success. Um, and in some cases, uh, we have people who were teaching how to make impact. Other cases, we have people that know damn well what, what they want to do and how they want to accomplish it. And we're going to help them measure their progress against it. So uh, those, those are big for us. I'm going to, I'm going to, touch on another one too, since, you know, at, at a more executive level, uh, a metric I care about a lot is bearing out collaboration uh, within our teams. We have, we have amazing people at CAP and I'm always measuring uh, or, or always keeping an eye on um, contribution, collaboration, places where people come together and get things done. And, and there's, a, there's a question in here about, uh, about narratives. You know, when it comes to maintaining morale, like what's, what's the morale narrative you want and, and find the metric that's gonna support it and invest in that, in that thing to, to tell the story uh, of collaboration working, to show the story of collaboration working and keep on building up from there. But yeah, I'm the digital guy, so we can, like, we can measure more than we ever need. Uh, it's just a matter of having intention and, uh, and, and we'll help you measure your way to success. Thank you. Uh, this next question is for Allison and it's from Ariane Le Chevalier. Um, I am assuming that lots of people have this issue as well. Uh, it's been increasingly hard to garner media coverage for organizations due to the noise. What earned media strategy tips do you have to break through the noise? That is a great question. It's actually such a great question. It's one that Daniela and I ask every person that comes in to interview with us for a position uh, on our, our press team. So. Uh, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad that we're on the same page. I mean, yeah, this is um, this is just this is the question of the last uh, three and a half years. I guess we're almost to four years, right? Um, you know, I start, like I said, I started a cap in 2014. We're in the tail end of the Obama administration. Um, it just seemed like a completely different era when things were happening on the political front. We we usually had pretty good insight into what it was, and now. Uh, you know, in the span of a couple of years, uh, it's just, it's, it is chaos um, every hour on the hour. So I think there's a, there's a couple things here that we try to do. Um, going back to what we talked about in a presentation, being nimble. Um, when I worked on the Hill, for instance, you really, we really did not have a lot of control over when things were going to happen. Uh, if we were, if the, if the bill was going to come for committee markup, that was not in my control. The bill was gonna to come to the Senate floor, that was not in my control. The Senate was gonna stay in session for all of August, that was also not in my control. Um, but we, and what we do on the communications team now is we really try as much as possible, we, we look at what's happening on the, we try to look at what's happening on the communications landscape, we try to be flexible, we try to be nimble, we, we, we work with our policy teams as much as we can to try to explain, um, to find, uh, where those, where the news hooks are, wh where might we be able to add a relevant, uh, add something relevant to the conversation, working with our coalition partners also to, uh, to find those inflection points. So I think trying, trying to be nimble, trying to be flexible, just because we wrote it one way in the communications plan, that doesn't always mean that's how it's going to be executed. I think it also comes down to, and I've talked about um, the embarrassment of riches uh, that, that I have, that we have at CAP as far as our communications team, fully understanding a lot of folks don't have that, um, those same resources, but we also try to be, uh, we try to be 
creative about the media strategies that we employ, or we really try to think about what are the audiences that we're trying to reach. I mentioned this earlier, and how can we um, how can we rejigger our strategy? So, we, like I said, we I sit we sit down every morning. We talk about what reports do we have coming up. How do we want to roll them out? Are we working on an exclusive? Are we going to hold a press call? Um, so I think it's it's also about using all of the tools in the communications toolbox and and working with the, my colleagues I have here today on the on the digital and the events front. Um, so we try to do the best that we can. You know, it's um, it's it is so hard to predict what's going to happen every day. You know, I like many others, I was. Uh, sitting down with my family for the Jewish New Year on Friday evening, and we had this, you know, breaking news, and and we've we've had to completely change things around um, since then, as far as you know the things that we're doing strategically. So I think, um, you know, using all those tools in the toolbox, being flexible, being nimble, and and of course, you know, maximizing the relationships that you have with members of the media, with reporters, if that's if that's the work that you do. Um, you know, for, for those, you know, whether you're new or whether you, you've come in, I think building those relationships is also really crucial as well and figuring out who are the reporters uh, that even when there's other things happening, they might be interested in, in what you're writing on because that's a pet, pet subject for them. Yeah, and I would just add, and I, I'm sure Jamie has a lot to, to say about this too, is, you know, as communications people, I'm sure we all do this, but knowing your history, knowing what you've already put out, know your product, know what's in your archive. So when something is happening, you are like, oh, you know what, rewrote this report on this thing five years ago, and all of a sudden it is in the news again. You know, what can I do to get this in front of reporters right away? Can I write a quick topper, send it back out? Um, you know, so that way you're, you know, staying top of mind with people, but like utilize your, um, your archive and your history and the work that you've already done to uh, respond to things that are happening uh, right now. If you want, to, if you want me to add to that, that's an uphill sure. battle for sure. Uh, guys, we're not, we're not perfect at it. And, and think of how fast uh, a successful think tank's personnel move, right? So often when we're pulling up that five-year-old report, it's not written by the person that's now in the position to promote it. So, um, you know, these are all things you have to manage and you have to manage culturally uh, to get people working together that way. And it's, it's not easy, but it, it's important. Mute. Okay. Um, this is a really good question um, from Eric Brown. Facts need to matter, but Travian Shorters told us this morning that narrative means more than facts. Do you agree? How do you harmonize these realities? That, yeah, yeah, no, that is definitely a word. I mean, look at our president. Um, so I would say, I mean, I'm never, of course, I'm always going to say that facts are very important. Facts matter. But your narrative is equally as important. We are, we absorb things through, through storytelling. Uh, and how you deliver these facts, how you deliver your message is so important. We are bombarded by a million different things in our lives, not just the news, but like your children and work and trying to figure out how we're living through this COVID nightmare. Um, so how you tell your stories, it's, it is absolutely crucial. I see these things as going hand in hand um, because you can tell a great story, but if it's just all, you know, bullshit and lies, you know, that, that to me is, is obviously that's not great from my perspective. Um, and I think your, 
your facts or your narrative is better bolstered if you're actually telling something that is true. Uh, so I would, I would say they go like this. Um, who wants to answer also? I'll, I'll add one quick thing. Um, I think it's a great point that you make about narrative and facts going hand in hand. And something that I think of um, our, our colleagues in CAP Action and in our, story, in our, our storytelling team, um, they've been doing some work this week to draw attention to uh, the sad milestone that we just reached. 200,000 Americans now passed away from uh, the coronavirus. And I think for a lot of us, that's a number that's even hard for us to wrap our head around what that looks like. Um, and, and they've done some really, um, I think, really thoughtful and creative work. Uh, they actually took out newspaper ads in, in Tempe, Arizona, basically saying, we have now lost the same number of people to the coronavirus as almost the entire, as more than the entire population of Tempe, 195,000 people. But I think then if you, for those that watch the Democratic National Convention, you think about the story of Kristen Urquiza. Uh, she's the founder of Marked by COVID. Her, her father passed away from the coronavirus. Uh, you know, I watched almost all of the entire Democratic National Convention and, and her remarks, her story, that was one of, I think, the most powerful moments that people took away from that whole week, even with tons of, you know, you had former presidents, former first ladies, all, you know, but, and that story, I think the way that she told that story and drove home that narrative um, and, and her personal story of losing a family member, I think was incredibly impactful. So I think it is, it is absolutely right that both that narrative and facts, they do go um, hand in hand and, and, and one underscores the other. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I just want to note that she is also one of our storytellers. Um, so this is a very good question um, from Rhiannon Colette. We heard this morning in the CDC Foundation panel that healthcare policy comms can at times be more sluggish than a news cycle because of the strong desire to perfect the messaging. How do you socialize non-comms folks and cap to the need to be urgent, nimble, timely in the conversation as it's happening? I chuckle because when I first started at CAP in 2005, um, even though, like I said, when John Podesta founded it in 2003, it was with the understanding that we were going to be a very nimble communications and outreach focused think tank. But there were a lot of policy people who came from a more traditional policy world who didn't quite understand how we were operating. And so there was definitely a lot of, um, friction, uh, to put it nicely at the beginning, uh, in terms of getting people to sometimes respond quickly. It's like, we need to put out a press release because something just happened. And I'm like, well, I'll get it to you tomorrow. I'm like, no, I'm going to draft something and you're going to approve it today. Uh, and, but eventually, you know, I think we've gotten there, but that is not to say that we still don't have some of those tensions here. And I'll let the rest of my colleagues sort of speak to that and how they work around those issues. Who wants to start? I'm going to say the, the least, so I'll start so I don't end. <laughs> uh, it, it's hard. Um, you know, uh, I, speaking of an old client, um, I won't name names. I, I was working on some healthcare work once where uh, maybe some people that are in the audience right now were busy photoshopping a child's uh, lunch tray um, on their school lunch when we were trying to talk about the healthy school lunches and, and making sure their health 
tray was perfectly proportioned to uh, whatever, the food pyramid, right? So those things come up that not just from policy people, they come up all the way through. Um, so, so I'm just going to say, you know, one of my saving graces is Allison's team of account, basically account oriented press people, because they end up knowing the issues at press depth, as well as any of the experts. Um, and if I don't think we have a Joe, so Joe's become my new default name. So if Joe isn't delivering like the sample tweets we need about some healthcare issue, I know Colin, who's a real person, is going to step in and write them and say, Joe, did these work for you? Because we're moving. Um, and so uh, having, having people with expertise adjacent to those policy people has just been really a forcing function at times when we've needed it. Yeah, and I would just say that uh, something that none of my colleagues have said and something that they do all the time, and it's training. I mean, yeah, these are policy folks. These are, these are folks that are, are, are trained to go into the weeds and to answer your very, very specific question on article blah blah or, you know, proposition this. And, and when you're talking to a, a broader audience, you need to be able to make sure that message translates. And so we have media trainings, we have event moderator trainings, we have, uh, we have a, a, a host of different types of trainings for different types of situations that we, and, and we work with policy folks on. Um, and, you know, God bless John Podesta, because, you know, when he formed CAP and he put communications at that center spoke of the wheel, he did it for just this reason. So we can make sure all of these message, messages translate and that people understand what we're trying to achieve as we try to help their lives get better. Um, and that is really important. I wish our, our, our president would take some media trainings to understand how to talk to people. But, um, uh, and that's our, our, the president of the United States, not the president of CAP. Uh, so uh, just making sure that's clear. Uh, but thanks, uh, I know we're getting close to the end. I just wanted to say thank you, thank you. Thanks to Com Comms Network. Thanks to Sean Gibbon, who used to be at CAP. He's part of that CAP mafia, I used to work here. Um, thanks to Tristan and, and all the folks that, that put this on. But thanks to you all for being here and for having this, this uh, family uh, of people that are always there to help each other um, this network is so important and, and we really appreciate you. Yeah, I just want to say thank you all just to, you know, jump on that uh, for joining us today. I also want to thank our colleagues, Constance, Torian, and Morgan Spivey for helping us with today's presentation because without them, there wouldn't be a presentation. Uh, if, you have any, <laughs> if you have any further questions, um, you can connect with us, all of us, via our staff bios on our website, which is uh, www.americanprogress.org. Uh, you can also reach us on Twitter at Amprog. And shameless plug, please tune into our weekly podcast called The Tent, co-hosted by yours truly. Um, thanks again. And everyone just have a really great rest of your day. Thank you.